I wanted to take this moment to tell you about a program I am in that helps women navigate the journey of realizing their lesbians while in relationships with men. It's a 12-week support program called Coming Out on the Other Side. It is hosted by one of my early podcast guests, Emily Better. Some of the topics include the three stages of coming out later in life, understanding why you didn't figure this out sooner, and why this is so hard. You will go from being scared, confused, lacking confidence, hiding your true self, and feeling alone, guilty, and misunderstood, to overcoming fears, understanding and embracing who you are, being confident in yourself and your decisions, and ultimately being able to come out and live as your authentic self if and when you're ready. Learn more by going to thelatelifelesbian.com. Welcome to the Let's Be Honest podcast. This is my first time doing an in-person interview. So here in Dallas, there's a local organization or ministry called Centerpiece, and they have a monthly, they call it Stories and Tunes. And so you were at the last one. I heard a little bit of your story just in talking, and I was like, okay, you'd be a good guest for my show. So we're here, and we're doing that now. So when we've talked, you've said that you've kind of always known you were gay, but you didn't really come out until later in life like a year ago right around or not even uh, publicly last month i actually oh, that's, that's right yeah Just, mm, wow. so i'm okay. like a newbie at all this and <laughs> terrified and and you worked in ministry yeah at a, an institution as you like to call it yeah for a decade and i know you did conversion therapy as well yeah. so i definitely want to talk about that yeah i think conversion therapy is a good place to start so i was in bible college gosh, I'm going to show my age, but like 12 years ago in that process, I also played college basketball. So classic lesbian, Christian lesbian story there. Use your imagination. There was this moment I had particularly on Mother's Day. I think it was like 2009, maybe 10, where I had found out that my mom was local somewhere. I was in Arkansas and she was local somewhere. And the background for that just to give clarity, is that my mom struggles with drugs and alcohol. And at that point in time, I hadn't really seen her or been around her. I lived with my dad and my grandparents. And so I was excited about the idea that my mom was local. She's from Texas and she just happened to be in that area. And so I contacted my aunt and uncle and asked them if I could come and see her where she was on Mother's Day. And so I decided to bring my partner at the time and we get there. And the one thing that I asked my aunt and uncle is if she could please, if they could try to keep her sober so that I could have like some real mom daughter time with her and obviously introduce her to my partner at the time. And in that process, it was already kind of confusing because we're in Bible college. Obviously we're not out. It's exciting to be able to bring your partner to something like this where it's more family oriented. And in that process, I would get there and my mom's not sober. And so it was a very difficult night, very difficult day. And we spend the night. The next day I'm leaving and my uncle's like, please don't leave yet. We can spend more time together. Just you, me and your aunt and et cetera. But my partner had to go back to work. So we were getting in the car to go. And my uncle who I think he meant something differently than what he said. But he, when I got in the car, he said, I don't know why your mom doesn't want you, but we do. And we want you here. And then he slides a 20 in my pocket for gas kind of thing. And so it was a very strange experience there because I was both like simultaneously hurt and confused by that statement. And it hit something in me. So 
I put some worship music on as we're driving back to school to campus. And Michael Gunger was the album I think that we we're listening to. And I felt like this super wound inside of me. And I just started praying and crying. And I felt like I heard the Lord say, this mother wound inside of you is real. And this girl in your car is not going to heal that mother wound. And that's what I felt like was happening. Like it was just so, it was so painful to experience that moment with my mom. And somehow my theology and my indoctrination told me that I was somehow seeking a woman's love, attention, affirmation, et cetera, because of my mom's addiction and because of our, we'll call it relational distance or whatever. So that led me to a deep Google search online where I was looking for Christian counseling and mentioned my struggle. We'll call it sexual confusion. And so that put me at this on the site. And so I call for a consultation because I'm thinking it's like counseling. And I find out they're in Dallas and they call me back and they're like, well, you have to go do what they call an intake and that will lead you to Dallas next week. So I head to Dallas because I'm from Dallas anyways, summer was starting and I do this intake to which I don't really understand fully, but later learned that this is a very occultic conversion therapy environment. And I would be in this environment for the next six years of my life, basically. So, so you were in it for six years. Yeah. I mean, like, okay. I think really four, four years. But yeah, it was like a long, I mean, the first thing they said is if you're going to be in our group, which means we had small groups on, I'll, I'll be anonymous on the time and place, but we had small groups. And the first thing you had to do, the gang initiation was you had to break up with your girlfriend and prove that you did so. Oh, wow. Okay. So first, let me just say, I guess I was just assumed that your parents or someone sent you away to get because that's the, that's the typical story right i don't know if i've met someone who like chose yeah who chose to go on their own or right. whatever so that's an interesting situation so you had to prove that you broke up what like what did you do i mean i just had that? to that was that was the gang initiation you can't be in the gang until you're <laughs> completely free from sexual immorality and all the stuff so we had to like get blockers on our oh wow i mean just there was so much. We had this online forum. There was the quote unquote counseling was not licensed counselor. It okay. was just some, I won't say her name, but a woman from that went to seminary mm. that was just basically life coaching you into sexual purity. And their big thing was God didn't call you to homosexuality, but to holy sexuality. So a lot of my theology and the indoctrination that I put myself in because my parents were not believers growing up. So a lot of my guilt and shame now comes from the fact that I chose the institution and that I chose this indoctrination and that I, but it was so retrospectively, my home life growing up was very messed up and there wasn't a lot of affection and love and good things. There was lots of fun and laughter and good stuff. I mean, but the church was this light at the end of the tunnel for me. And so it felt like loving and it felt like I had spiritual mom and dads and all this stuff. So it was just, I really coming from where I came from, it was like the light and I was in the darkness. So it just, that environment was, I mean, and this happens a lot. Like you come from a broken home, the church feels safe. And so anything they said to me pretty much right or wrong, et cetera, 
I believed and tried to do the best I could to adhere to the authority, spiritual authority, and honor that in my life. There was a deep indoctrination. I won't go into what type of institution. I'm not going to go into all of that, but I will say it was a very strict religious environment that felt so much better and safer than home life and mm -hmm. naturally went to Bible college after that. And so this thing was right on the money because I was used to being gaslit. I was used to being stonewalled. I was used to institutions or people telling me that I had to be above reproach and never be alone in a room with a boy and all these kind of things that fit right into that culture, I guess. So maybe because you had a bad home life, it was like, even though the environment wasn't good, the fact that you were in kind of a community of other people that had similar experiences, other gay people... Uh so maybe you felt like you belonged or mm. even though it wasn't a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I, in the intake, I remember the woman being surprised that I was there and hmm. said stuff like, so are you here for family and friends? Or are you here for personal reasons? And I was like, I guess personal reasons. And she was like, what are you, a lipstick? Oh, wow. And that, I mean, this is supposedly high bets that she's not, but supposedly a straight woman. Yeah, the fact that she even knew what the hell ups. Well, lips. she's on the she's in she knows the vocabulary and all that because she disciples many lesbians or coming out of lesbian lifestyle into Christian lifestyle. Heavy quotes on that. So you know the whole SSA culture mm -hmm. and all that. So that should have been like retrospectively my red flag was, oh, what are you, a lipstick? So mm -hmm. this culture preaches, you're not a lesbian. Your identity is in Christ. And you're a child of God. You're not a lesbian. But yet, like, as soon as I got there, I was told that I was a lipstick. And mm. and later on in the intake, she even said, like, on the spectrum of gay here, you're, like, gay gay. <laughs> Based on her questionnaires and her surveys uh -huh. with me. They had this freaking survey that somehow can detect how gay we are. And I'm like... <laughs> gay gay so wow i was gay enough to get in the group i guess you mm -hmm. know? so yeah there was that element of you're sick you need a doctor we're gonna put you in this kind of inpatient environment around other sick people that need a doctor and you can't know their names hmm. last names specifically you can't know what school they go to or what job they have you cannot know where they live you can't know anything about their identity other than all of their sexual struggles, basically. So we knew mm. everything about everyone except for last names, et cetera. And, you know, we're meeting once or twice a week for years. Okay. So the, it wasn't like a live-in situation. There was a live-in situation, yeah. Oh. when I was you... not in it. Okay. I'm from Dallas. So, well, uh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. But there were people from... Africa, Australia, Alaska hmm. that had migrated here to be involved <laughs> in this living cult is what we call it now. So if you weren't living there, you would have two meetings a week, like Sometimes. in person? We had conferences we went to. We had camps. We literally called them no mo homo camps. <laughs> Like legit. Uh, uh -huh. And the girls would learn how to do their hair and makeup and the boys would learn how to play football, which was so great to watch. Because all these lesbians were all in here, like, learning how to put on freaking lipstick or something. And we're looking out of the two-story building window at these, like, boys throwing footballs and stuff. And we're all so jealous and, mm. like, wanting to be out there kind of thing. I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed football and good lipstick. So, yeah. not a lipstick lesbian. <laughs> yeah, so it was, just, it was just an ironic environment. So, I have another friend who has a 
podcasts, like a movie review type mm-hmm. podcast, when I was starting to come out and everything, she was like, okay, I want you to watch this movie mm-hmm. and then we're going to record an episode about it. I'm a cheerleader or something like that. Okay. It's like 20 years old. But the main, who was the actress? See, I can't even think of who the actress. Oh, Natasha Leone from Orange is the New Black. And oh, well, I'll oh. be watching it later today. Then. Okay. Well, anyway, so basically she gets sent to this conversion therapy camp, Yikes. but it's a live in situation. Yeah. And the stuff you're describing is like exactly like that movie. (laughs) Like the girls had to do the makeup and they had to do like learn how to like sweep and cook and like all the stay at home mom type stuff. And then the boys would learn football and all that stuff as if football is like. Like, yeah the key to manhood right yeah in our in our culture it pretty much is preached that way. So that's interesting to hear that it actually really is like the movie and what i thought in the movie in particular and of course you weren't in the live-in situation right it seems to me like a bad idea if you're trying to get people to not be gay (laughs) to have women (laughs) sleeping in the same room or in the same house or whatever so just to clarify i think the live-in situation was mostly for the men which okay so yeah (laughs) but i i will say the occultic aspect of this is that if you so even have the the other person's telephone number, you're kicked out. And so they welcome you into the family. You've got your mama, you got your daddy, and you got all your brothers and sisters. But if you do anything that crosses a line or a standard, even way before sexual stuff, you're out. Mm. So you get kicked out of the family really fast. Okay. Or you get banned from certain privileges, like the online forums, or you can't come to group for three or four times, or whatever. It, it's there's punishment for any type of boundary, quote unquote, heavy quotes. They have a lot of stuff set up in place that they're monitoring. Yeah, and and with that, I'll say, yeah, I'm an anomaly in the way that I, in the way that I chose to go there, but there were kids who. Parents would not pay for their college or school if they did not go. And I'd witnessed several people get kicked out and not just kicked out, but were in group. And the woman says, basically, you don't want to be here. Get out. And I've seen girls just break down and cry knowing that there goes my the college. There mm. goes everything because this was the stipulation for my parents to pay for school. Mm. And I just got kicked out because I am perceived to not be taking this seriously. And so I was one of the privileged ones that didn't have that situation, although I didn't have like parents paying for my school, period. I was on a basketball scholarship. Mm -hmm. But there were people whose parents were that conditional about things like that. So this stipulation was scary. So you didn't break a rule because your college was or your ability to come home to your parents was in jeopardy if you did. And so these parents would send these kids from Australia, from Africa, from Alaska trusting this quote on heavy quote ministry to be like God, the deciding factor of the Mm -hmm. longevity and wellness and welfare of this person's life and their opinions of whether you're good enough or not, or becoming straight enough or not are heavy, heavy, heavy. They're God. They become God. So yeah, we don't cross the boundary. Mm. I mean, I'm sure there were people that did, but as far as the girl group, I don't think I even heard a story about anybody fooling around or because that that was just like a no-no. Now, the living boys, I've heard some birdies tell me some things, but 
I don't want to, I don't want to get anybody in trouble or kicked out. Okay. So what was the process like in deciding to eventually leave? Like you were in it for what, four years, you said, was it a kind of a gradual thing where you were like, I don't know about this or this isn't working or, mm -hmm. or was there something, some big event that happened or mm -hmm. what was that like? The ending is confusing because red flag number two of many <laughs> would have been when they encouraged me not to go to counseling. Oh. And yeah. so I had a tragic situation happen in my life where my mom tried to end her life and mm -hmm. almost did. And so I was actually teaching at a missionary boot camp in North Dallas and got the call that my mom or may my mom may or may not be gone and that she had attempted. And so in that process, I get online on the forums and just say, hey, guys, please pray. My mom attempted today. And the response I got back from one of the actual group leaders was, don't let this be an excuse to go back into the lifestyle. And that was the response. And then on the forums, they have like likes and hearts and the same mm -hmm. things that we have now on like Instagram and stuff. The main director hearted that. And it was a girl that lived in Australia that actually posted after that and said, guys, her mom just committed suicide. Like, can we have some like prayer empathy here kind mm -hmm. of thing and so red flag number two i guess and so that spiraled me into rebelling against orders and going to therapy and it was mm -hmm. when i was in a normal therapy office that i was told "Lacey, you're in a cult and there was some powerful conversations there where i learned some things about myself and my trauma and what trauma responses i had in life and just learned a lot about therapy and mental health where I was able to differentiate a lot of things <laughs> that actually mm -hmm. led me to becoming a therapist now. And, mm -hmm. and so in that process, I started sharing, eventually I confessed to the director that I had been in therapy and I told her, you know, what I'm learning about myself and things got really, I pretty much got iced out after that. There was a situation that happened that's like not even worth talking about, but I had run into a non-SSA girl who is involved because God called her there to help the SSA. We call them the mm -hmm. strugglers. We're the strugglers, right? Yeah, I've heard that. Mm. And so she was there to help the strugglers and I ran into her on a mission trip. And so I started telling her, some things confuse me. And is there anybody else that I can talk to that can give me some clarity? Because I'm trying to talk to the director and feeling kind of iced out right now. And, and then I was projected onto as being this person that had no boundaries and that was emotionally dependent and all this stuff. I was getting gaslit and iced out by the director. And so I was trying to talk to someone else to see if they could answer my questions because I was just being demonized by mm. the director who had all of the authority and power, basically. And so in that process, word got out that I had seen or talked to another living hope person, even though she was not a struggler. And so that was enough authority, or I guess that was enough justification for being kicked out. So right. I got the email from the director when I was actually working. I was in Latvia, which is in Europe, and I was working with women that had been trafficked. And I remember this moment that I got the email because I was in the detox room. We had just rescued two women off the streets, and they were detoxing off of heroin. And I was literally back and forth between two of the women holding buckets for them to throw up and just being there, helping their recovery and mostly just trying to entertain them, play them songs on my guitar and stuff and just help them find some kind of peace or solace. And I, that's when I got the email from the director that was like, mm. you met someone outside of the group, you broke a rule, you can't be here anymore, you're done.
Okay, so you were kicked out then. And that's the embarrassing part. It's kind of like one of those things where it's like you and somebody ask you like, well, who broke up with who? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. your ego or your pride might want to be like, I I broke up with them. Mm -hmm. But no, the truth is that I was kicked out and it was a very painful. It took me years and years of working through the fact that I had all of these quote unquote friends Mm. that felt more like family that I didn't get to say goodbye to. So if you're watching this, we didn't get to say goodbye. I feel that that was a really, really difficult thing. I'm sad we didn't get to say goodbye. I don't know your last names or I'd find you. But years and years and years of being friends with you guys and not getting to say goodbye was that was a heartache that I can't go into right now. But, you know, they become your family. You know everything about them. Mm. You don't know their last names. Mm -hmm. And once you're kicked out, if somebody sees you in public, like at a concert or Walmart or something, they're not allowed to talk to you. This is basically like shun the non-believer at that point. Mm-hmm. And so later on, one per- years and years later, I was singing at a competition in Europe. And one girl from the group, the Alaska girl, had found me on the internet because I was doing a lot of music stuff in Europe and contacted me. And so we talked and she had actually told me that, and this is he, he she said stuff, but that the director told everyone that I had gone back into the lifestyle and that I had left. And so even talking about it now, like, my body is shaking a little bit and mm. my stomach, my heart feels like I dropped in my the bottom of my stomach a little bit. Like a trauma response, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a visceral experience of sadness. But yeah, I mean, I wish I could say, yeah, I left them. I realized what I was a part of and I left. And But that wasn't the truth. That's not the truth. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's not the truth. And I commend anybody that did have the confidence and the wisdom and the courage to leave. But that mm-hmm. was not my story, unfortunately. I mean, but it's good that whatever, whether you left or they kicked you out, it's good mm-hmm. that it happened sooner than later. How many years ago was that? 2014, 2015, something okay. like that. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so once you were kicked out, what was your process like? Because I imagine that it would be, it would take some time to kind of relearn. Because as I understand it, your family has always known that you're gay, mm-hmm. supported, they didn't really care. So it wasn't probably until you went into this group that it was like a bad thing or something. So how long did that take or what was that process like to get past that? I think I was in the desert for a long time. Mm. I mean, what I was trained and everything to be in ministry. So naturally, that's what I did. So I was a worship leader at a known church here in Dallas for 10 plus years and started doing camps and conferences, women's conferences, youth conferences. So I've been on the road for 10 plus years doing ministry. One ministry that I will talk about is Soul Church Ministry, which is a homeless ministry, one of the biggest homeless ministries in the United States, led by Pastor Leon and Jennifer. And they have an incredible ministry where it's outdoor street ministry. And I got to be a part of that for years, leading worship for this group of amazing people. So I I was busy doing what I knew to do, whatever the scripture says, what true religion is, right? Feeding the homeless or housing the orphan or whatever. Like I was a part of ministry and many, many others until at some point I ended up getting on staff at a church and basically becoming like a music director of some kind after doing some worship music at a song competition in Europe. The doors opened for me to get to do more things like that involving worship and ministry it's hard to like be so vague because i that my whole thing with like i'm gonna not gonna name names because it's the institution that i am 
petitioning here. I'm not petitioning the men and women that have done life with me for years and years that loved me and supported me and really were like spiritual mothers and fathers. And I'm not petitioning them, but unfortunately we're all in ministry together. They're pastors and pastor's wives. So they're a part of the institution. And I'm not expecting them to quit their job because the institution marginalizes our people and basically doesn't let us become quote unquote members. But I am now taking a stand against the actual institution because for 20 something years, I've basically been paid to play and sing worship music. And I'm like the forefront of certain stages and video B-rolls and stuff. Yet, if I just simply said, oh, I'm gay, I couldn't even be a member, which means I couldn't sit at the table and drink the wine and eat the bread with people. I can entertain you, but I can't be in the family until I somehow like denounce this thing. And that's so strange to me because let's just pretend for a minute that that it's a sin, which we obviously believe it's not. But let's just pretend it is. Why is it that that issue is the one that always gets singled out and you can't be a member? You can't da 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 when there's people that they know who are adulterers or Mm -hmm. addicted to porn or alcoholics or who knows, whatever. You want me to answer that? Oh, yeah. Because I think essentially homosexuality is viewed as basically we woke up one day and we hit a pipe of gay. And now we're essentially considered addicts since we have same sex attraction. Then we basically have a what a higher propensity for pedophilia, for debauchery, for what did you say earlier? Orgies, like all mm. these things were, were put in that category of addicts and all these other things because obviously like we chose to do this. I mean, we woke up one day and decided I'm going to take a hit of gay and then we became addicted. And so now we're basically addicted to all of it. We're just one big box of sin. So yeah. And the correlation that they like to make between being gay and being a pedophile or promiscuous or whatever, it's like, where do they make that connection? And it's actually, from what I've read, no. it's straight men that are primarily pedophiles and stuff, not <laughs> like gay people or gay men or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know where they make that connection. But even if that was the case, like... Why would they let me sing a song and play guitar and piano and all this stuff and lead their band? Okay, it's so hard because the people knew. I never walked into a church and said I was straight. Yeah. I mean, when I came out last month, I've got so many like savage, petty messages from people that were like, girl, we knew you were gay in 2017 when you were that like this and that on stage for Christmas, you know, <laughs> like what is it? The Converse and the mm. dress jacket, you know, or we knew you were gay. You always had some like sus cute girl sitting in the front row supporting mm. you. Hopefully some of you guys understand that because I know there's tons of lesbian worship leaders out there calling you out where it was like. We knew kind of thing. But what my community, this was my circumstance. They were like, listen, gay or not, let's just do the whole don't ask, don't tell thing. So essentially that was my situation is that the pastors, the church members, some of the leaders knew, but it was just like, let's not talk about it kind of thing. And I know that other people have been treated so much more harsh than Mm -hmm. that. And so I I thought that was kind. Like I thought that was love Mm -hmm. for a long time. And It took me a long time to realize that that was not love Mm. and that was not kindness. Mm. I think they meant it out of love and I think Mm -hmm. they were as kind as they could be, but that was not actually loving or kind. 
mm-hmm. to ask me not to be who I am right. and ask me to basically not, I say this to my clients all the time. How can we feel seen if we don't feel known? How can we feel loved if we don't feel seen or known? And ultimately we, in order for us to receive love, like there has to be an element of feeling known and feeling mm-hmm. seen. And so I've walked in and out of this, these institutions now for 20 years feeling appreciated for the gift and the mm-hmm. time and the energy, but never feeling known, therefore mm. never feeling loved. Mm. And so from that perspective, I think it's very relatable to anybody. Depend- I mean, I think that's relatable. <laughs> yeah. And I remember at a church I was at several years ago, probably a decade ago now, I was wanting to volunteer. And so you had to fill out this paperwork or whatever. And one of the questions was if you have homosexual tendencies or a history or any of that kind of thing. Mm. So I just blew it off and didn't end up doing it. But it got me thinking, I'm like, okay, they don't have questions for every other thing. They're not like, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever, whatever, list off all kinds of things you could be doing. But that was the one that they specifically point out and make and have to make sure that isn't an issue mm-hmm. especially in terms of having any kind of involvement with a children's ministry wow. for example i guess because they think can you leave. imagine if they would let the gays run the children ministry though <laughs> it would be so popping like yeah. first of all like have you seen women on like i mean gay women doing anything involving kids or animals like we're so good at it like yeah would, i mean those kids they learn their Bible verses. It might be like a really fun song. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm just like, I, I've There'd be a lot of glitter involved. A lot of glitter. Like those, <laughs> those, these gay men that love, like they, that they love kids and they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, they would, it'd be so much fun. Like, <laughs> okay. So eventually you left that organization or church or whatever. Uh, Actually, what I want to know is what got you to the point of making that decision? And knowing, okay, I just need to be myself and, like, be open and honest and out. Years and years and years of therapy, prayer, supportive community. But I think the main thing that I had said a lot to those who did know and that stood by me and supported me was I'll come out when God calls me out. Mm. Yeah, that was, like, I don't want to come out for a partner. Mm-hmm. I don't want to come out for uh, public relations. I don't, for those who know and those who matter will know, and they it doesn't matter to them. Mm-hmm. So that's how I was for a long time. Don't ask, don't tell kind of situation. <laughs> but I think it was, I opened up this practice, I opened up this office as a therapist, and as God would have it, it's like every other person that came through the door is like, I'm gay and I can't come out mm. because I'm Muslim and my family will completely walk away from me. They'll cut me off. And I, I'm hearing so many people's stories and realizing that I had this amazing honor and privilege of getting to hold space for so many people, learning about the risk of not coming out. This is something I don't think people talk about enough, and you might get some backlash on this, but you put a kid in a situation where he's told not to come out of the closet, but maybe he's detected, he or she is detected as possibly gay. And so there, what happens to an isolated person in a closet, they're susceptible to abuse. They're susceptible to a lot of things. And you ask somebody to hide, well, what happens in secret? What happens in the dark? And so that's a lot of people's stories. It's a lot of people's stories. And I hear that story in this room every day, like things Mm -hmm. that happen when we don't come out. And so all of a sudden, 
I become this advocate for people to like come out for their well-being and safety and for the mental health and all this stuff while I'm sitting here, mm. not out. So, man, I wish I could be this hero. I wish I could fight their battles. And yet I'm sitting here completely hypocritical because I was so afraid to lose my church family and afraid of what that meant for music ministry and all this other stuff. So that is the truth unfortunately. Mm. And then there was a moment in February of 2023 where I had woken up and I felt like I heard God say, Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. You can come out with no penalty. And so there's this really amazing morning where I just really felt my understanding of the presence of God. I began journaling and writing and processing and worshiping and all this stuff and wrote a song called Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. It ignited this feeling, if you will, or belief that God was actually saying, okay, it's time. So 32 years, it's time. Mm -hmm. I have a plan. So that obviously took place. Then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to prepare for this. I talked to church leaders and let them know what was up. And we made a plan together. We, they were kind and loving and supportive in some ways and then understanding. And so we created a plan and a soft execution kind mm -hmm. of thing, a soft launch for me to be, to prepare my music teams to have a new leader and just all the things that go on with leaving church, being a staff member, leaving the environment. I tried to do it as kind and loving as possible. And I think the leaders were also very kind and loving. And I know that's not everybody's experience, but that is mine. So with that being said, I decided to do this like eat, love, pray trip to Europe. I was there for a month and I was previously a missionary in Estonia on and off for 10 years my 20s. And so I went back to Estonia and I told a good friend of mine, if I come back to Estonia after all these years, I'm going to come back out as myself. And this is like my soft launch into coming out. So basically, so everyone I knew in Estonia were like people in ministry and missionaries and pastors. And so I came out to each and individual person. It was like one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And that moment right before you say it, you know, you can't unsay it. Like once you say it, when the cat's out of the bag, yeah. And that the love and acceptance that I got from the, those who mattered and encouragement to come out with no, like just come out and be who I am. And it, it also opened up the door for other people to come out to me, which mm. is wild. And so that was my soft launch. And then when I got back to the States, basically the night that I got back to Texas, I wrote, I had screenshot a journal entry from Lesbian Visibility Day earlier that year and posted it. So that was the work up to that. And mm. that was a month ago. Were most people supportive or like a 50 50? I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> like, yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, people I didn't expect to support me did people I expected to support me did not. Interesting. Lost some friends, gained some new ones. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm at right now. And mm -hmm. the church, the leaders, the pastors, all the congregants have been silent. Oh, really? Yeah. No one has said a word to me. I have not gotten a text message. I have not gotten from the leaders. Oh, wow. Nothing. So they, they handled your exit okay. Right, to protect but themselves. they yeah. yeah, but they haven't reached out. No. How are you doing? Nothing mm. that, none of that. But I mean, it's kind of like, well, you made the decision to leave. So do you think that if you hadn't made the decision to leave, that you would have been kicked out? I mean, I guess you wouldn't. Or you were saying you were still allowed to play music, I guess. Mm. How would that have impacted you if you came out but didn't leave on your own will? I'm going to lean into vulnerability here and say I think it would have been hard. 
I think it would have been messy based on the countless amount of stories that I've been told recently. It would have been a big deal. So when you did leave, obviously the leaders and everybody knew why. Yeah. But the congregation, they didn't have some big, oh, she's leaving because she's gay or any of that. So the congregation themselves don't know, I guess. I mean, unless you're my social media friend. Yeah, I mean, there might be people that watch this for the first time that are just finding out. I don't know. I really mm. don't know. I haven't been given, like, death threats or, or no hate crimes <laughs> are happening. Like, yeah. Kind of thing. I mean, it is 2023. Everybody has, like, a cousin or an aunt or a friend or somebody who's gay, you know, so it's mm -hmm. not that taboo. And what would you say for people who, and obviously you deal with this all the time, who want to come out, but... And how did you do it when you came out to people that you were afraid to come out to or thought that there might be a bad reaction to it? How do you even start that conversation? Yeah. First of all, discerning. It's different. It has to be an organic moment, I think, sometimes. How do I tell that? That there's there's people that are very intuitive and they know how to read energies. And there's some people that don't, that need like a format, an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> so I don't have the Excel spreadsheet. I don't have the list of how to come out or what way. I just waited on moments where those who were truly wanting to know how I was, I was honest with them mm. about what that looked like. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom so many times during the process of telling people. Oh, really? Like, to expel and to, I mean, like my stomach. I mean, mm. it just, it was viscerally terrifying and i experienced that in my body like psychosomatic oh, wow. vibes mm -hmm. for sure like it was just such a scary thing physically and then i would even have friends later say how was it coming out to such and such and what did they say and i was like it was terrible and they're like what did they say and i was like oh they love me and support me and they're like what do you mean it was terrible and like my dude i had like ibs the whole time <laughs> well terrifying. that's a good good thing to be prepared for i don't know i mean i just waited on the moment it wasn't really mm -hmm. There were moments where I had friends in Estonia that I hadn't seen for years and I'm asking them how they're doing. And so the conversation would just be about them and their experiences and COVID and divorce and joblessness or whatever they were going through. I would lean into them and be myself and love them. And if there was some form of match reciprocity in the how are you, then I would match their vulnerability and I would meet mm. them in that and kind of thing. And Sometimes it was the other way around where they asked me, what have you been up to? How are you? I start, I open the door to that and say, hey, like, this might be a surprise to you or maybe it's not, but I want you to know this. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to show up at my funeral one day and find out that way. I want you to know. And then almost 99% of the time, it was like they would match me with that same level of vulnerability and honesty about their lives. And mm -hmm. my gayness just became the catalyst for closeness and empathy and everything else so mm -hmm. it was a connecting piece for people for mm -hmm. them to know for me to tell them yeah so you kind of just waited for opportunities to naturally present it it wasn't like you went into a setting like okay this is the day this is the time <laughs> this is okay we're gonna sit down and have this conversation it uh, was just organic yeah organic very much yeah okay. not a lot of mechanics mm -hmm. the most mechanical thing i've done is post something mm -hmm. and even that was came in an organic moment like instead of posting from myself right now, I posted a past history journal entry, mm. like an honest and raw unedited and misspelled. Apparently I had some friends let me know that too. Thank you. <laughs> Grammar issues there. But ultimately I just posted in an organic moment where I felt like the, the, the feeling kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it was always, I knew the feeling and I'm learning to acknowledge the feeling i'm learning to lean into that because it's 
simultaneously physically exhausting and terrifying. And also I feel this undeniable peace mm. and assurance mm -hmm. kind of thing. So piggybacking off of that, what do you do or say or handle when you do come out with someone and the reaction is bad? I guess it depends on how you see bad. Like if they start talking about, well, you know what the Bible says, and they start talking about the Bible verses and all uh, that stuff. I try to stray away. What I've learned that doesn't work is, is trying to educate them <laughs> on things. That does not work. I try not to use theology as a catalyst for arguments or disagreements. So I think being gay in the church has taught me how to hop into that fruit of the spirit of patience mm -hmm. and steadfastness. And so when these things happen, my goal is to practice the fruit of the spirit right then and there. Mm -hmm. And when I think of what Paul says, if you're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted, basically. You're going to be persecuted. Don't let that persecution, don't misunderstand persecution for your own faults. And now you're being persecuted in the name of Jesus. No, you like you messed up mm -hmm. and now you're getting whatever for it. I, I try not to look at the situation as, oh, someone's treating you badly or whatever. I try to look at it as, there's one percent of truth or a grain of truth in what they're saying. Lean into that. And the other stuff, submit that to God. I tried to have as much of a teachable, flexible, open mind and as I could while also practicing the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, patience, kindness, all the things. Try to hop into my faith and operate out of that. As I still, you know, I know that the institution often preaches like faith over feelings. Mm. And I'm about that. I am. Not when it comes to our orientation, my God, it mm. is different. But I, I think that, like, I try not to see anything that anybody wrote as bad, mm. as negative, as contrived or critical or pharisaical. I tried not to make judgments. I, I tried to just accept what was and what was not. I'm sure if somebody looked in my DMs and saw the things people would say, I'm sure there would be people that would be very offended by what certain people said to me. Mm. But I've been on both ends of it. So a part of me coming out is also seeking to make amends to those in our LGBTQA community and kind of bear my cross in that way, mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like the antithesis of what we're taught. But basically, I saw it as that, bear your cross, speak the truth and shame the devil kind of thing. And there are going to be people that quote unquote lash you or criticize you, mm -hmm. whatever, let them like, let the, that turn into like, let that fire refine the gold. I and mean, they're mm -hmm. going to be people that truly believe you have a demon inside of you. Mm -hmm. They're going to be people that believe it's not God's best. Mm -hmm. There, some people even said, you have grieved me with mm -hmm. this, um, still being open, like still practicing your faith, gentleness, mm -hmm. patience, mm -hmm. forgiveness, grace, father, forgive them for they do not know. So I don't know if I saw anything as necessarily bad or felt bad. I mean, if I looked for it, I'd find it for sure. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So if you're in a situation in a in-person setting and someone expresses something negative or they really want to debate you on the issue or mm -hmm. they get angry or whatever, because I've noticed people go from like zero to 60 in no yeah. time with this topic. Do you and should one engage that or because mm -hmm. you know you're not going to change their mind in one's conversation yeah. or are you just like, I understand, mm -hmm. but it's probably best that we move on but, or switch topics or mm -hmm. I don't know. So you're, I, I, I'm hearing you say, do you appease them? Do you avoid them? Do you confront them? Mm, mm -hmm. I, I think 
like I said, all of this has to happen organically. In general, I think that I lean into whatever it is that's happening. Mm. Like I accept the present. So if they were in my face going from zero to 60, I'm going to assume that they have been hurt at some point in life. I'm going to assume that they have been taught some of this or perhaps they struggle with some of this. Some of the most internal and some of the most homophobia I've seen is internalized homophobia. Mm -hmm. I mean, that from people that are gay, mm -hmm. that, you know, so there's always a reason behind everyone's behavior. So people are going to go zero to 60 on this subject. I've, I'm accustomed to that, whether it's left or right, I'm accustomed to it. And so I just trying to lean in, try to lean into the person in the conversation. My natural instinct, though, if you want to know the truth, is I'm like, okay, what are you unfamiliar with the Enneagram? Mm -hmm. Gosh, mm -hmm. I hate it, but I love it. Um, <laughs> you have a love-hate relationship. I do, because what they say about my personality type, especially as a female, is like, bitch, basically. Like, <laughs> I, basically, this, they just sum it up with bitch, you know? <laughs> But, you know, being raised in the church from 10 and up, like they basically train us to be Enneagram 2s, mm -hmm. helpers and stuff. So I often get misunderstood for a 2, but I'm an Enneagram 8-7. So I'm an mm -hmm. 8. So my natural in instinct is to defend, to protect, to fight, to argue. That's my natural inclination. And I'm aware of that. And so because of that, I almost have to like ice myself down in these mm -hmm. scenarios to find some type of balance and not get too lost in a perception or to look out of a lens of just looking for the injustice and looking to bully the bully in the room, mm. if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. that's my natural inclination. So I try to find the middle ground of that. What I've learned in this past few years of working with LGBTQA is that when they get hurt or they get wounded or marginalized or kicked out or whatever, I am mad. Like mm. I am so mad on the behalf and I want to punch that person and I want to advocate for them. And I've had to process quite a bit why I'm not feeling that way towards me. I haven't fully figured that out. But I'll say this, I've always believed that it's not about me, but it's up to me mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And so me coming out was also an act of justice for the sake of those who have been hurt and kind of saying, you pick on them, you pick on me, pick on someone your own size. Mm -hmm. Let, let's have a theological conversation. If that's what you want, I'll lean into it. I'm not coming at this wanting to win. I'm coming at this with the hope and prayer for there to be peace, and clarity, and a perspective change. Mm. But I'm not in it to win it. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's the shift that a lot of us, and maybe me in particular, need to have is like, don't go in it to win it because yeah. you're not going to with one conversation. Mm. But just if you can even plant a seed or a, a question or a consideration or whatever for them mm -hmm. to be open to maybe rethinking or doing some of their own homework on it they will know me by the way you love them i mean that's what scripture says they will know god mm -hmm. by the way you love them i think is what it says so mm -hmm. my job in my our calling is first for them to feel loved for them to know that they're loved and their version of that is hate the sin love yeah, the sinner mm -hmm. right so i think that it could be, as you're talking about shifting, the mindset it could be lo love them, turn the other cheek, obviously, seek for peace and reconciliation over division. I think that if we can seek to be peacemakers, then our actions and our love and our example of grace and compassion 
and turning the other cheek might change the heart of that person that ultimately takes time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, what does scripture say that his kindness leads us to repentance? Mm -hmm. So we're still called to walk in that. And I think that they're expecting us to fight. They're expecting Mm -hmm. us to boycott and petition and all these things. But I guess some of my philosophy so far is basically like just peace protest, basically Mm -hmm. like I'm not out to hurt your church. I'm not out to criticize your sermons and pick you apart. I want to be a part of, I want to eat at the table. I want to drink the wine and eat the bread. And I want my whole family to be able to, too. Mm -hmm. And if I can't bring my family and by family, I mean my LGBTQA friends and family, my family, if I can't bring them and they're not going to be offered the same thing your heterosexual quote unquote people are, then like, I'm going to pack up and leave. So the conversations, though, were kind. They were mm-hmm. loving. They were understanding on both sides. I and mean, we sought clarity. We read a few books together. Mm. We educated ourselves. I learned some new things. They learned some new things. So I think conversation, like I said, I believe the biggest miracle of all, I think, is a change of perspective. Mm. And I think that most miracles start in a conversation. Mm-hmm. So, and the rest is action. I think we're taught in the church early, you know, you're representing the church, you're representing Christ. Or if you came from a very religious family, you're representing our family, you know, whatever. And so we have this idea of like fearing a defamation, if you will, in some way. I'm not saying we do it out of that teaching. I'm saying we do it out of a real reverence and understanding of the love of God, which can only be found in the secret place with him outside of just mommy and daddy's faith or a building's teaching, like a real true authentic seeking of God. Mm-hmm. I think that we can find that those fruits of the spirit in the secret place. I think we can bathe in it. We can download that app in our heart. We can ignite it every opportunity we get. Every time we do come out, we also have the opportunity to show them the love of God. How can they protest that? 20 years of being in ministry, 10 on staff. I didn't hear anybody. I don't any know if any of them can say, yeah, she didn't have the spirit of God in her. I mean, she had a crap attitude on Sunday mornings at worship practice sometimes, <laughs> you know, she was late a lot, but they, I don't know if they could say, yeah, they could deny the Holy Spirit inside of me. And I think that there are a lot of people right now that are in the church that were, that can be the bridge. They have the Holy Spirit oozing out of them. People can see that they love God and they love people and they show it in their fruit of their lives and they're gay. And that's going to, I think, change the indoctrination altogether is the example of of people that do have enough strength and courage to walk into these institutions, knowing that as soon as they're found out that this institutional love is ultimately conditional Mm -hmm. and still choosing to have unconditional positive regard towards the institution. Mm -hmm. I think it's the longer route. It's a harder route, but if we're representing a faith where we're stuck in Egypt for 40 years in the mm-hmm. desert and all these things, like we, we know that a part of our faith is patience, perseverance, longevity, steadfastness. So we're finally able to be in a time and an era where we can practice both our faith and sexuality mm-hmm. safely. And so I'm grateful to be here. Wow. I feel like we've covered so much and I really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I invite you to dive deeper into conversations from this podcast. Join our community on Slack. Here you can connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, and engage in meaningful discussions. Plus, 
you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be answered on the podcast. Together, let's build a supportive space and shape the future of the show. Join us at lesbianest.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.